Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And I'm thrilled today that my guest is Dr. Crystal Moore. Dr. Moore is a professor of social work at Skidmore College, and she's the co-author of the Divorce Recovery Workbook, How to Heal from Anger, Hurt, and Resentment, and Build the Life You Want, and that she wrote with Dr. Mark Rye. Uh, She's also a mindfulness-based stress reduction practitioner and qualified teacher. Welcome, Dr. Moore. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you. So obviously, people who are going through a divorce are feeling a lot of stress. And I know that people are constantly saying, well, mindfulness is the way to help with that. And, you know, can you help our listeners understand what mindfulness is for starters and then how it can help deal with stress and other difficult situations? Absolutely. You know, it's uh, mindfulness has come quite in vogue in recent years, and I think at times it has been touted as a panacea, the cure-all. I don't think it necessarily is, although it certainly can help. And basically, mindfulness is a moment-to-moment awareness of the present. So it's what is happening right now, right here. And the way that I like to think about it in terms of decreasing stress is we tend to have backstories, what I refer to. For example, a couple is separating. One of the members of the couple is moving to another residence. And the person who is staying in the home begins to think in the future, well, how are we going to get the kids there? And who's going to be responsible with this? And he or she wasn't very responsible in the past, etc. And so what happens is we begin to develop these stories that then add to our stress. And so if we can become more aware of what is happening right now in the present, and that includes what's going through our minds, we have a tendency to not exacerbate the feelings associated with a very, very stressful situation like divorce. So I think what you're saying is that if you can separate out the story from what's actually happening and then, again, your own reaction to it, that helps keep the situation from compounding in your mind and building stress and maybe also building conflict. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that all of us from time to time have, you know, confronted a uh, an ex or confronted a member of our family or a stranger, for that matter, regarding a story that we have come up with, we think we know what's going on, but that really is not a reflection of reality. And so I think that getting facts, getting the information that we need to make decisions, weighing those facts when they're in front of us versus really developing a long, drawn-out story about what if this, what if that, again, that can really 
lead to rumination and then increase our stress. And it also takes away from our enjoyment of what's happening right here, right now, or the potential enjoyment. So I think that a lot of people think that if you're going to be mindful, that requires hours of meditation, sitting on a pillow in the lotus position. And I don't think that's what you're saying. So how can people introduce mindfulness ideas and techniques into their lives on a day-to-day basis that don't require taking up Buddha practice? Yeah, absolutely. The mindfulness-based stress reduction that I have been certified in is a secular approach. It takes those Buddhist principles but allows people to use them in day-to-day situations in which they're experiencing pain, anxiety, or a myriad of, of negative emotions. And so one of the most important things is being able to center, and that is often centering on the breath. So wherever you are, You can pause for a moment, and that doesn't mean you have to stop motion even, but you stop and you pause in your mind and you just find your breath and you focus on your breath. And that is an old practice that so many people, you know, know, when we get upset, you've got to breathe, you have to breathe. But that really brings us to the present and what is happening right here, right now. And, you know, focusing on the breath, People can even sit for, and not even sit on a cushion in the lotus position, sit in a chair, lay on the bed for five minutes, for three minutes, for two minutes, but find that feeling of focusing on the breath that allows you to then become centered in the present can be really helpful. There are a couple of other ways that people can use mindfulness, and I have to say in my clinical practice, you know, helping people be able to become an observer of their own thoughts and emotions is a really important way to begin to decrease stress. You know, we have this ongoing monologue that is happening in our head, and if that was actually a person and they were sitting by you on the couch and all of that stuff was coming out of their mouth, it would drive you absolutely crazy. (laughs) But, you know, when we are thinking or we're ruminating or we're what-ifing or we have this backstory, all of these thoughts and emotions are going on in our head and we often aren't even aware that they're happening. So one of those, the first step is really to become aware of that inner monologue. Sometimes it's a dialogue. (laughs) Sometimes it's a group conversation. But that idea of just being able to become an observer without getting caught up in those thoughts can really decrease the amount of stress that we experience when we're faced with really difficult situations. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful information. And I know, Dr. Moore, that your life's work has been focused on being part of and bearing witness to the process of individuals and groups constructing healthier narratives and developing meaning and purpose so that they can constructively relate and figure out, you know, find their own resilience and healing. What it is? What brought you to that work? I am a child of divorce myself. I have been divorced myself. I have had a family that has had its share of problems, just like every other family. And I have always had a great sense of compassion for other people. And so 
this line of work really allows me to build on the strengths that I have. I've been told that I'm a good listener. I'm very interested in people's stories and in people's narratives. And so I've also experienced quite a bit of loss in my life. And it is something that I am, I don't want to say the word of comfortable with because I don't know if that's the, the right word for it, but I am able to be with loss that other people are experiencing. I'm not afraid of loss at this point in my life. I think that's a really interesting idea because I think many of us are afraid of the pain that loss brings up and afraid of the fear. If that happened to somebody else, maybe it could happen to me. And Mm -hmm. you just want to, I mean, even when we're the ones who are experiencing the loss, it's so tempting just to bury yourself in work or alcohol or parenting duties or whatever it is and not allow yourself to actually experience it, which I don't mean like going to bed for weeks at a time. (laughs) You know, I think there's a a healthy medium, and and I think that's what you're talking about. Is that right? Absolutely. About 10 years ago, uh, I lost my father, and he died, and a piece of advice I received at that time was when the grief comes, lean into it. And I didn't, you know, at that time, I thought it was an interesting piece of advice. But what it did is that when I did feel grief, I allowed myself to feel it. Not every time. I wasn't perfect at it. Certainly, I distracted myself with work or distracted myself with other things from time to time. But I did my best to be able to be with those feelings. Because while they are very difficult, feelings are just feelings. They're emotions, and emotions won't kill us. They can hurt, absolutely. But the more that we tend to bury that grief reaction, the more it seems to come back to haunt us in bigger ways. And so that idea of leaning into it gave me space, and I also you know, have advised and, and suggested to clients that same approach. And what it is is also gives you permission to feel that loss. And with divorce, I would like to just quickly read a sentence by a woman named Pauline Boss who writes on what's called ambiguous loss. And divorce falls into that category. Somebody is physically absent. They're no longer in the home. They're no longer your partner. But they're often psychologically very, very present. And so she says, that closely attached people who become separated through ambiguous loss suffer a trauma even greater than death. Now, I don't want to say that losing somebody to uh, death is, is not traumatic, as it certainly is, but I think that the point that she's trying to make is that this, this sense of ambiguous loss, the person that you have lost keeps coming back in your life often, especially if you have children. And so it is a grief that is often difficult to, there's really no closure, in other words. You can resolve it, you can get through it, you can see things in a different way, but there's not a neat way of tying up that sense of loss. 
You're listening to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller, and we're here on WBOX Alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast on all podcast providers. And I'm talking today with Dr. Crystal Moore about divorce recovery, and uh, we've been talking about ambiguous loss. And you know, Dr. Moore, it's very interesting to me because I've, I've certainly heard about ambiguous loss as being not like a complete loss that then you can, you can recover from. For example, where you have a soldier who's missing in action, where you don't know whether or not you're grieving for that or not, or a parent who has Alzheimer's or other dementia, so they're physically present but not emotionally, not, you know, mentally present. And I never really thought about it in terms of divorce where the former partner is still so emotionally engaged sometimes, at least in the early, you know, it takes it the process of disengaging from that, right? And, yeah, and, absolutely. And feeling that sort of sense of, okay, the marriage is over, but this person is still in my life and, and emotionally and also physically because they're coming and going, coming and going, you're co-parenting, you know, possibly, but very likely. Uh, and so what do people do to deal with that? Well, you know, one of the things that I, I think one of the first things that a person can do is acknowledge what these feelings are that they're having, that this is a grief reaction. So really being able to name it, I think, is a really important step initially. And the realization that we tend to think, um, especially in our culture, in dichotomies, it's either this or it's that. We often think kind of in black and white. But dealing with ambiguous loss often requires us to think both and. So, for example, a person might have had a very difficult and contentious divorce and harbor a lot of resentment towards their ex-spouse. That can be present, but at the same time, that individual can also embrace the fact that they now have a new life that has promise that they are going to, if they do have children, they're going to be a co-parent to their children and do the best job that they can, and that possibly on down the line, there might be room for forgiveness of the ex-spouse or even forgiveness of the self. And so there's this realization that it's not either or, that we can have that ambiguous loss Yet at the same time, we can find resilience and hope. So again, I think that number one is is becoming aware of that. I also think that being able to define who is in the psychological family and defining some boundaries around that. And again, what if you have children, who is in their psychological family versus who's in your psychological family as the parent might be different. And you know what? That's okay. So if you were very close with an in-law, for example, and now you don't ever see that person anymore, which is possible, do you define that person as being a part of your family, of your psychological family at this point in time? So it's really beginning to develop some um, boundaries, reconstructing our roles. Now that we don't have our partner here to do X, Y, and Z, Am I going to do X, Y, and Z? Am I going to call on another member of my family to do X, Y, and Z? Um, so really having to be flexible around roles and broadening the family rules for problem solving. You know, maybe there was a structure in the family pre-divorce that was pretty set. 
well, now we need to have a different way of dealing with that. So I think that that's really these ideas of boundaries is really a way of reconstructing our own identity, you know, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to our broader family. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So that's only uh, one way. (laughs) Yeah, so let's see if we can sort of break it down a little bit. I mean, it sounds like there are strategies to try to separate these different reactions out. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Absolutely. And try to separate ourselves out from our former partner, from our children, and so that each can be dealt with with separately because, of course, we're not let off the hook being parents. And, of course, we don't want to be let off the hook being parents and coworkers or, you know, extended family members, and we still have responsibilities and interactions with other people going forward. And it sounds like what you're talking about is bringing in some coping mechanisms to allow us to transition through the hurt by acknowledging the pain and introducing um, ways in which it become less uh, grabbing of the individual and so they can process it better. Is, is that right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, this notion of of separating out, it is, I would say that what we're doing is we're redefining our own sense of identity because, there, you know, when you're in a couple, that, there's a couple identity. And then if you're in a couple and you have children, there's a family identity. So first of all, being able to reformulate who we are as individuals, but also reformulate who we are in relation to others, in relation to our family, in relation to our coworkers, in relationship to our community. And so that takes, you know, some thought and some self-reflection, I think, is a really, really important piece. And this is not easy stuff to sit around and think about. No, you know, absolutely. Dr. Moore, I think that it's really difficult, particularly for women who often will create an identity as wife and mother and tend to, not all women, but some tend to put their own identity to the side in the effort to be a good wife and a good mother. And I think for those people, when faced with divorce, especially if it's not their choice, really struggle to redefine themselves in a more independent structure. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is really important for uh, women to, you know, seek out other women who have gone through that process, a support group, a therapist, or even just a group of friends in which you can begin to have this both-end thinking. Yes, I no longer have that identity as a spouse, and I have an opportunity to develop a new identity in terms of who I am and who I want to be. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm Catherine Miller. You're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 and also available as a podcast on all podcast outlets as well as the podcast website, divorcedialogues.com. And I'm speaking today with Dr. Crystal Moore. She's the author of the Divorce Recovery Workbook, How to Heal from Anger, Hurt, and Resentment and Build the Life You Want, that she wrote with Dr. Mark Rye. And so, Dr. Moore, if people want to learn more about the book or more about your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I have a website, and the website is drcrystalonline.com, and it's D-R-C-R-Y-S-T-A-L, that's my first name, 
online, O-N-L-I-N-E dot com. And some of, you know, I've got reprints of my work up. A little bit more information about the Divorce Recovery Workbook is there as well. And one of the things that we, when we wrote the Recovery Workbook, it is a workbook. So it goes through some of these processes. It has guided prompts to help people work through some of these issues. Because, you know, like you said, in reflecting on what I had talked about in terms of what a person can do, you said this is a lot. You bet. And this is all, sounds somewhat theoretical, maybe psychobabblish. But at the same time, I think that having some very specific tasks and having a commitment to working through them can really give people a roadmap to become their best self. Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that, that it's sounding a little psycho babbly and maybe a little bit academic. But I really do think that these are very real, and I know that these are really real things that people go through. And there is a process that everybody goes through. And it seems like that the book that you've written and the work that you do really can help people through that process more efficiently with fewer false starts. And I think that's really wonderful, a wonderful opportunity. What we did, our book is based upon um, the principles of positive psychology. And, you know, positive psychology, you know, there's an Apollyanna-ish look at the world. Basically, it's how do you build on your strengths so that you can thrive, so that you can be your best self. It's not a way to pathologize behavior or say, that's bad, we want to change that. So let's build on what we have going on. That's great. That's good. That makes us feel well and helps us have really solid relationships. So we go through a series of principles, of ideas, such as self-forgiveness, self-compassion, making meaning, etc., and give people ways and prompts to be able to work through some of those principles. Let's talk a little bit about forgiveness. You know, it's another one of those things we're told we're supposed to do. It can be really hard to do. I think it means different things to different people. And and I also think that when people apologize in our culture, instead of saying, I forgive you, we often say, it's okay. And and Mm -hmm. so... And then, and it may not be okay, right? So I forgive you is different than it's okay, and I don't, and they're not synonymous, right? And and so, no, no. Uh, Dr. Moore, what do you think about forgiveness? What what does it do for each person, and what's the best way to reach a sense of peace and let go of resentment for the person who feels uh, that that person has been damaged by another? Well, the short answer to that is one small step at a time. You know, it's yeah. not something that you just decide, okay, I'm going to forgive this person and I'm done. No, that you may feel peaceful one moment and then the next moment you're reminded of something and you are right back where you were before. So maybe to talk about what forgiveness is not, you know, it's not forgetting, it's not condoning, it's not reconciling, it's not quick and easy. But what it is, is a gradual letting go of negative thoughts and feelings toward a person who has wronged us. And one of the things in order to forgive someone is to set an intention to forgive. I want to forgive my ex. I am intending to forgive my ex. And you don't want to set that into, you don't want to tell your ex that possibly. I mean, it depends upon what the the situation and the relationship is. But this is something that you might discuss with a friend. This is something you might write about in your journal. 
and realize that it takes a lot of compassion towards yourself. You know, I want to forgive, but I am so angry today, I don't know how I'm ever going to forgive. Well, what if the person did something unforgivable in your mind? I mean, so how do you reconcile letting go of the resentment, which is toxic, you know, oneself, and letting them off the hook? You can forgive someone, and that person never needs to know that you have forgiven them. You don't have to give them a pardon. Forgiving someone who has really wronged you and and in a way that, like you said, something that is unforgivable is something that you do for yourself because that, that anger, that hate, that resentment can begin to build up inside and be very detrimental. Yeah, I think that resentment is, uh, I'm, I'm fond of the expression that resentment is like swallowing rat poison and hoping that the rat will die. Exactly. Exactly. It's so easy to hold on to resentment when you're getting divorced and and even as a way to push yourself through it. But it is a really difficult uh, emotion to live with on an ongoing basis. Yep. So, Dr. Moore, thank you so much for being our guest on Divorce Dialogues. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure, definitely.